Okay, on the back of your bulletin, I have a couple of things to call your attention to. Um, today, we have an inquirer's class right after this service. So if you're interested in knowing about our church, uh, you're new, and uh, maybe you've been here a long time, and you don't know why we do the things we do or what we believe, I'd like to invite you to come to that. Lunch is provided. So uh, it's just right across the hall in the commons. And then uh, next Sunday, we have Baptism Sunday, and I was just asked this morning, is it too late? No, it's not too late. So if you would like to be baptized, my name and Mark's name and our contact information is in the bulletin. So contact us uh, early this week, and we will meet with you and uh, talk about baptism. We look forward to that. And you can read the rest of it. There's all kinds of really good things going on here at the church, and uh, you can see what's happening. This morning, I would like to pray for a couple of things. One is... um, since I have gotten this virus, I've learned that a bunch of you have gotten this virus. It's the one that keeps on giving. It just doesn't go away. It hangs around for a long, long time. So, um, Ruth, it's good to see you here. I'm glad you're past your pneumonia. And, um, so I want to pray for our own church. And the second thing is uh, we'll continue this year to pray for this election year. As I watch the newscasts and the debates and all that, I... I had confessed to you that it's very confusing to me, and, uh, and I really think we have a very divided um, country, and I think our church is divided as well, as I listen to you talk about who you think should be the next president, and uh, I'm not wise enough to know who should be the next president. I'm glad my vote only counts for one, um, but I know who does know who should be the next president, so I'd like to step into his presence for a moment and ask for his wisdom. So, Father, I do lift up our, our own congregation. Lord, we have a number of people that are sick. The list goes on and on. You know them all. I do not, uh, myself included, Lord. And I pray that you would continue to bring healing to all of us and help us to, to restore our health quickly. Thank you for those that are passing through pneumonia. I think Ruth, I'm glad Ruth is here. And Sally Morris, thank you, Lord, for uh, the good news for her that she's passing uh, through pneumonia as well on the other side. And I pray, Father, that you would protect those of us that have caught, gotten the virus so that we don't get sicker. Thanks for watching over our congregation, our people. And Lord, we do lift up this important year, this election year. <coughs> Father, every year that we have an election is important. We get a chance to learn about you in that process because you're the one that promises to put whoever you want in power. And so we just once again come to you and ask Humbly that you would put the right person in power. You know what you have in store for us as a country. And I pray, Lord, in the meantime, that as we are doing this, going through this election process, that you would somehow um, make yourself known to our people, um, our country, so that we would um, we would know you even better than we've known you before. And uh, continue to watch over us. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Okay, today we're going to look at a very intriguing verse, I think, about Jesus. It's one that's not found in the Gospels. This one is found in Hebrews. I'm going to read it to you. It's Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7, 8, and 9. You may have heard this before, but I suspect for many of you, you have not. So, during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered, and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Okay, it's an intriguing verse. Why in the world did Jesus need to learn obedience? 
why did he need to be perfected? Uh, as you can imagine, lots of conversation around this verse, trying to make sense of it between pastors and scholars, and we're going to jump in and do our best to make sense of it as well. Today is the fourth Sunday of Lent. Each week we have been looking into uh, stories of people who shed tears, and we've been asking the question, why did they cry? Everyone has a reason why they cried. And today, we just read Jesus shed tears. He shed fervent cries and tears because of um, his impending death. So we've been attempting to connect a little bit more deeply with our own broken world around us, our own challenges, our own sorrows. Um, if we can do this better and better, then the true story of Easter will make sense to us. We will appreciate it. And by the time we get to Easter in about three weeks, uh, I think you'll enjoy it. We'll be rejoicing together over what Christ has done. But first, let's right now, let's take a look at this passage. Okay, I just read it to you, Hebrews 5, 7 to 9, and let me tell you what pops out to me just, just by reading it. First of all, he regularly offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to God. This says something about his humanity. In fact, did you notice his whole three verses are all about his humanity? His learning obedience, his needing to be perfected, whatever that means. We'll come back to all that. So this is a discussion about his humanity. Uh, probably his desperation as well. I suspect if you were faced with um, an impending execution, you would be pretty desperate yourself. I would be. His prayers and cries were to the one who could keep him from death. This shows his focus. In the midst of all that, he wasn't distracted. He kept coming before his father, pleading with him to take this away. He was submissive, and therefore he was heard by God. This says something about his faithfulness. In the final analysis, one of the questions we have to ask is, what does it look like to live out our faithfulness no matter which course God takes us on? This is the course God took him on. And he's showing that he is a faithful person. He learned obedience from his suffering. We'll come back to this one, but this says something about his need to grow and mature. Interesting thought. Jesus needed to grow and mature. He was made perfect. This shows he had to go through some kind of process. Again, we'll come back to it. He became the source of eternal salvation for all of us who obey. This says something about his deity. Only God can be our eternal source of security eternal source of salvation. Finally, he was designated by God to be our high priest. That's the final verse in verse 10. He was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. This says something about his status from God's perspective. God only chose one to be the high priest. Only one, and it was Jesus. But why the tears? Why the tears? Where'd they come from? I mean, does God need to cry? If he's God, didn't he know all things? Well, in this passage, in order to make sense of it, we have to back up and read what came just before this. So I'm going to start reading in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, to give you the context that leads into this very enigmatic series of statements about Jesus. Some of this language you have heard, and some of it will be new to you, I suspect. So Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, 
Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is, who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. You hear, did you hear that? He has been tempted in every way just as we are. That's important. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray. Can I want you to hear that verse again? These are wonderful words. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray. Aren't those good words? Those are great words. I believe with complete conviction that every one of you has gone astray at least once. In fact, after getting to know you the last two and a half years, I'd say most of you go astray pretty regularly. <laughs> Myself included. We just wander. We're sheep. We love to wander, don't we? And he is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and who are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as for the sins of the people. And no one takes this honor on himself, but he receives it when called by God, just as Aaron was. In the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest. But God said to him, you are my son today. I have become your father. And in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And then you have these three verses. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Okay, in order to get to these three verses, you have to understand the whole context is about God appointing for us a high priest. That's what this whole section is about. He appointed for us a high priest. Now, we love that language. We use it. We throw it around. We banter it back and forth. We use it in our sermons. But what does that really mean? What does that really mean? Now, remember, in the Old Testament... The Old Testament, in some respects, gives us a tangible reality of what's about to come. You can touch the stones of the temple. You can smell the animals as they're being executed. You can hear the bleeding of the sheep. And then you have Christ who comes along and fulfills all of that. But he does more than fulfill it. He begins to redefine it. And all that language begins to reappear in the New Testament to help us get a grasp of what true spiritual reality looks like. We've used, for example, the example of the temple. We are called a spiritual temple. How do we define a spiritual temple? Do we look at a Hindu temple? Nope. Been there. Buddhist temple? Absolutely not. Been there. Our only way to define it is to go back and take a look at the Jewish temple and begin to get a grasp of what happened in the Jewish temple. That will make sense for us today. So, in the Jewish temple, this is where they worshiped God. This is where all the festivals occurred, all the dancing and the partying. The nation got together three times a year at least. So when the world looks at us as a spiritual temple, do they see us dancing and partying, laughing, enjoying the world? 
Over here is where the poor, the needs of the poor could be careful. You could come through the temple and, and receive help. When the world looks at us as a spiritual temple, do they see us looking and taking care of the poor? Do they see that? Do they see social justice as part of our commitments or not? And the list goes on and on, several things you could do. Well, now we have priesthood. So the Old Testament priesthood serves as a model. Christ becomes our high priest, and then he redefines what that means, and then we become priests. We become believer priests. In the Old Testament, the priesthood was restricted to men. Only the men were the priests. By the time you get to the New Testament, guess what? We are all priests. All of us, men and women alike. There is no gender difference in that. So the first couple of questions I want to, things I want to highlight from this earlier passage in Hebrews, let's talk about two qualifications that relate to Jesus and will help us understand what the author was saying here. Number one, the priest had to be able to sympathize with those who, whose cause he maintains. That's the way God set it up. Whoever is going to mediate on our behalf before God needs to sympathize with our own cause. That's why he chose humans. So the priests in the Old Testament were able to empathize with our weaknesses because they have been tempted in every way. Uh, they live life just like we do, and that applies to Christ as well. The result, especially with Christ or uniquely with Christ, is that we can approach God's throne with confidence. We don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be afraid. God is the one that we can approach for help. But a second qualification stands out. He has to be human has to be human. That's chapter 5. Not only human, but a human appointed by God. Now, the long line of male priests heading up to Christ had some things in common that also apply to Christ. He is appointed among humans to represent humans. It's a real dilemma in Christian theology that uh, in order to be a priest, you have to be a human, but in order to atone for sins, you have to be a deity. And so we call that the God-man. That's what we call Jesus. That's why Christian theology argues that he has two natures, one essence. Holy God, fully human, united in one body forever. As a human, he can represent us, and as God, he can atone for sin. Today we're going to talk about the human side. Because the priest is human, he is subject to weakness, and therefore, able to deal gently with all of us. It's an amazing thought to think that Jesus had to deal with weakness. I believe he did. I believe he did. The one place where it's not true of Jesus is that the priests came out of their own brokenness to offer sacrifices for their own sins. Jesus didn't have to do that. He started the conversation by saying he did not sin, so he didn't have to offer sacrifice for his own sin. Christ was declared to be our high priest by God, but from a very different order. Why not Levi and Aaron? That's where all the Old Testament priests came from. So why doesn't Jesus follow in the line of Aaron and Levi? Because under the law, in order to be the priest, you had to be from the tribe of Levi. But in order to be the king, you had to be from the tribe of Judah. So you would never have a priest and a king from this, as the same person. It's not possible. Not under the law. In order for Jesus to become our priest and our king, he had to close the law. He had to close the priesthood because he wasn't from the tribe of Levi. 
is from the tribe of Judah. So in order for him to be both our king and our priest, he had to bring an end to the law. So God found an earlier priest, Melchizedek, to help us understand that process. That's a discussion for another day, Melchizedek. But you understand, in order for Jesus to be both, he had to close the law because he couldn't fulfill that. So Jesus' tears are related to his becoming our high priest. That's the whole context leading up to this. You are my son. Today I have become your father. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, the tears, all four Gospels record Jesus agonizing in the Garden of Gethsemane. I'm just going to read the account in Mark. It's Mark chapter 14, but you can read it out of all four Gospels. They're all there. So in Mark chapter 14, this is just after the Lord's Supper when he's with the disciples. Mark chapter 14, verse 32. Then they went to a place called Gethsemane. That's a garden just outside of Jerusalem across the valley, Kidron Valley. And Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. There's that language. He's now hours away from the most excruciating death we can devise as humans. Crucifixion was so excruciating, it only lasted for a very short period of time in world history. Uh, Not even 70 years. They even thought it was too, uh, too undignified and painful. So he's about to experience the most excruciating death we can think of. And he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. This is talking about his humanity. This is you and me. If we were in this place, so be us. (coughs) And he says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. That's a person in deep travail. And the Luke account, Lucan account, he begins to sweat, sweat, great drops, drops like blood. It's not blood, or I would say drops of blood. It's drops like blood. He's just sweating profusely this last night. He's just a moments away from being betrayed. And he's in deep, deep distress, anxiety, and sorrow. Now listen to these words. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears. And Luke confirms the, just the flowing of the tears to the one who could save him from death. He's desperate. God, save me from this. I don't want to go through this. I really don't want to go through this. We're talking about agony in its deepest form. This is our Savior right here. As part of the process, the author of Hebrews tells us he had to learn obedience. Yes, he was still human, and he had to learn. He had to learn something about what it means to conform to God's will. And in his case, it came about through suffering. His life was not easy, because that was God's will for him, that he would suffer. And he readily agreed to it. But that doesn't mean he likes it. It's just like you. When you submit yourself to the Lord, you agree to walk the road with him, even though there are parts of it you're not going to like. That's what Jesus did. He was tested again and again and again in that suffering and that testing, and he learned obedience. 
through that process. He learned what it means to conform to the will of his father. This is what you and I have to go through, isn't it? Doesn't this describe our very lives? Okay, now listen to these words. We have a high priest who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Then you have the part about becoming perfect. And now we enter into a whole new phase of theology here. All right, when I use the word perfect, you naturally think of moral perfection. And so we create a conundrum with Jesus. How would Jesus, if he's God, have to be morally perfect? Let's back up a little bit, just a little bit. Now let's talk about his humanity some more because this is important. When Luke wrote Luke, he decided to emphasize the fact that Jesus, everything Jesus did, every part of his life was lived under the power of the Holy Spirit. When you combine that with these words from the author of Hebrews that he was tempted in every way as we are, we begin to get a different picture of who Jesus is. You see, Jesus, I believe Jesus was God, but I believe that he, um, I believe he willingly chose not to exercise his divine prerogatives for that, that 30 plus year window when he was here. The reason is because what's the one thing Jesus had never experienced? Or God had never experienced? Humanity. He created us, but he's not human. And so in order to really grasp what we go through, he became a human. But the moment he exercises his divine prerogative, he's no longer like me, is he? Because I can't do that. Can I? You can't do it. You can't all of a sudden become omniscient one day, can you? It's not possible. So Jesus' entire life from beginning to end was a series, one after the other, of testings and temptations. Now, we know about the 40-day 40, 40 window of his tempting. We know about that. And every one of those temptations were him to act like God. That's what Satan was tempting him to do. Turn the stones into bread. Can, I, can you do that? I can't do it. But Jesus could. He was tempting him to take a shortcut. At the end of his life, what did the centurion say? You're, you're the son of God. Come down off the cross. Come on, you can do it. What did Jesus say to Peter? Don't you know I could call legions of angels if I needed to right now on the night he was betrayed? His entire life, one day after the other, was a temptation for him to act like God, to exercise those divine prerogatives which he had and he chose not to. Why? Because of you. 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 Because of you and you and you. You and you and me. He wanted to know what it was like to be human. And the only way he could do that was to restrict himself. That's the only way. So he lived his entire life tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. You know what that says, folks? You have a Savior. His name is Jesus. He understands. He's been there and done that. Whatever you're going through, he's there. We find in other parts of the scriptures that Satan loves to uh, accuse us. He's our accuser. 
day and night, 24 hours a day, he's standing there accusing us before God. You know, boy, did you see what Rob just did? That's what Satan's doing. Did you see what Rob just did? Rob's my friend. I could tell you some secrets, but I won't. And here's Jesus. He's saying, yes, Rob did. But it's okay. I know how hard it was for Rob. And he's covered under the blood. Did you see what Julie just did? Yep, Jesus says, you're right. Julie just did it. And it's okay. I know what it's like. That's why he is our high priest, is because he understands. He went through everything we go through. Everything. Everything. Tempted in every way, just as we are. He did have to learn obedience. It's an amazing thing. So now we get to this whole idea of perfection. What's he talking about here? Okay, we have to slowly move away from the idea of moral perfection to give you a better picture. This idea of he had to be perfected, um, it's a word that means really to complete the, a process. So when you look in the first century documents, the writings, they would use this word, for example, when they completed a building. So you have a construction project. I don't know how that works. I know many of you do. You start building things, and next thing you know, there's a building with windows and doors, and you can live in it. When it's all done, it's completed, it has been perfected. That's the same word that's used of it. Now, this word occurs several times in the Old Testament related to the Old Testament priests, and I think it gives us some insight into what Jesus went through on the earth. So it's in Leviticus 8. I'm going to read this little section to you about the priests. Leviticus 8. Now, Leviticus is a book where they're being given all the holiness laws and codes about what God expects for them to, to be the true people of God in order to reach the nations of the world. <coughs> Remember that when God made us holy, what that means is he made us different from the people around us so that they would want to come and say, who is this God that you serve? I don't know this God. This God that you serve is wonderful. By the way, that's what happens when you, make, when you do your marriage right. When you do your marriage right the first time, the people around you come and say, how did you do that? Even if they never asked you, they see it. How did you do that? What is it you're doing that I don't have? That's what holiness is. You become different. We use the language of set apart for a special purpose. He sets you apart in that you look different than the people around you. So Leviticus is all about how are you set apart. And right in the middle here, we have some language about priests where this word occurs. So Leviticus 8, verse 30. Moses took some of the anointing oil and some of the blood from the altar and sprinkled them on Aaron and his garments and on his sons and their garments. So he consecrated Aaron in his garments and his sons in their garments. Moses then said to Aaron and his sons, cook the meat at the entrance to the tent of meeting and eat it there with the bread from the basket of the ordination offerings as I was commanded, i.e. Aaron and his sons are to eat it. So he's repeating what God had told him to Aaron and his sons. Then burn up the rest of the meat and the bread. Do not leave the entrance of the tent of meeting for seven days. Okay, this is important. Stay at the tent of meeting. Don't leave it. So don't leave the entrance to the tent of meeting for seven days until the days of your ordination are completed. There's that word, perfected, completed. For your ordination will last seven days. What has been done today was commanded by the Lord to make atonement for you. You must stay at the entrance to the tent of meeting day and night for seven days and do what the Lord requires so that you will not die, for that is what I have been commanded. 
All right. You see, here's the way it worked with the priests. You couldn't just waltz into the temple and start doing things. God didn't allow that. The whole fourth commandment, don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. That says nothing about cursing God. Lots of people curse God. No, it's something far simpler than that. Don't walk around and, and use God's name without even thinking about him. So you just, as a priest, you just couldn't walk into the temple and start doing whatever you wanted. It would cost you your life. So what they did was for seven days, they would stay outside and go through a cleansing process, a ritual process to prepare themselves for work in the temple. Once the seven days were completed, then they would go in and serve their month of duty. And part of that process was, was getting the mind in the right place, focusing on the Lord, reading the Psalms, all of that sort of thing. That's what the priests had to do. At the end of that seven days, they were completed or perfected or prepared. You could use any of those words. <coughs> that make sense? They had to go through a process in order to step into God's presence. All right, verse 9 of Hebrews. And once made perfect, once having been completed, once having been prepared, Jesus became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Jesus' life is what prepared him to be our high priest. Not because he was God. That wasn't it at all. Because he was God, that's what qualified him to be the eternal sacrifice, to atone for sin. But what qualified him to be our high priest is that he was a human, and just like the priests in the Old Testament, he finished that process, which the author of Hebrews uses to describe his life. You see, we focus on his life and his death, don't we? which are great. It's wonderful. I'm not criticizing that. Christmas and Easter. Those are the two wonderful bookends, but the author of Hebrews says what happened in the middle is critical because that's where he proved himself worthy. That's where he was perfected. That's why he could become our high priest. So his life was one long temptation, one day after another, one event after another, and he did it right. And what do we get out of it? We have a high priest who stands before our Father day and night, and he gets it. He lived our life. He went through everything we go through. You're not alone. You're not alone. All right, so when you put it all together... His becoming our high priest involves several things. His tears, which reveal his humanity. His strong desire to avoid pain and suffering. You've been there, haven't you? I have. When my first wife died, I was there. Holding her hands. I did not want to go through it. I was only left with two options. Live out my faith or flush it down the toilet. That was it. In the first service, we had a woman visiting who um, <clears throat> uh, two and a half years ago, she was on the verge of ending her life. Very bad relationship. Very Everything about it was her, her life was terrible, tragic. 
And she was just at this point where she had made the decision to end her life. And she sat there in her living room and she said, I either need to end it or I need to figure out what to do to change it. And I have no idea how to do that. She opened the drapes of her living room window and looked out and read our sign right here. She lived right here. Dylan, she used to. Dylan Community Church. We proclaim Jesus as Lord. And she got up and came across and said, we're a pastor here. Cindy in, uh, ushered her into my office. And she said, with tears of desperation, can you help me? And we met for quite a long time. She now lives in Denver. She's up visiting. And uh, she came to know the Lord. Christ has been through this. This is his life. This is his life. So his tears revealed his humanity, that desperation to avoid the pain and suffering. My God, my God, why did you forsake me? Why did you turn away from me? That's operating out of his humanity, just like you have to. There are moments when God is not present. At least it feels that way. And he is silent. And Jesus experienced it. But it's more than that. His obedience revealed his need to grow and mature and to learn what it means to conform to God's will. You have to learn that, don't you? I do. I do. It's a lifelong process. And it involves suffering sometimes. Not always, but sometimes it does. And finally, his perfecting or being completed within his human life made it possible for him to become the source of our eternal salvation. This is why he is able to sympathize with all of our weaknesses. This is the reason why. Where do you find yourself in this story? Are you stuck? You stuck in that Christian journey? Something's in the way, you don't know how to move through it? Are you alone? Feels like no one else knows what you're going through? You know, Nancy and I have a tremendous marriage. It is a great marriage. But there are points along the way where she doesn't even get it. I am alone. Been there? You don't even know who to talk to. I saw a commercial not uh, a number of years ago, a few years ago now. It was a good. It was a good commercial. I don't remember what they were advertising. So maybe it wasn't a good commercial, but <laughs> but it, it it captured something that I think theologically it was a person. It was a whole multitude, thousands of people, and it said, thousands of people, and everybody disappears but one, and no one to talk to. I felt that from time to time. I think you all have too, haven't you? You have a Savior. You have a Savior who understands. You have a Savior who's been through everything you go, you, you're going to go through. His name is Jesus. Father, thank you for sending your son. Jesus, thank you for um, choosing a way of life that none of us would have chosen. For choosing to voluntarily step down from all the joy and the glory of being God and becoming one of us. 
simply to sympathize with us. It would have been so much easier to destroy us and start over again. But you didn't do that. You chose instead to become one of us so that you could understand us. And then you could lead us as a great priest, as a wonderful priest to the true God. Thank you for knowing how to deal gently with us because we do wander every day. Thank you for doing that. We pray these things in your name, Jesus, because we believe in you. Amen.